Today, we are looking at the life of a man who lived for almost all of the 1800s. He was one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren Movement. He took care of 10,240 children during his lifetime. He started 117 schools and made sure that more than 120,000 students had the opportunity to have Christian education. The pronunciation of his name is debated. Some spell his name M-U-E-L-L-E-R, while it's spelled M-U-L-L-E-R with two dots above the U, which is called an amulet. He pronounced his name Meller, and most people today pronounce it Mueller. This is the story of George Mueller. Welcome back to Church History. I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens. We have some new listeners, so I want to share with you what this podcast is all about. We're telling the story of the church in chronological order. As Christians, we should know our history, the good and the bad, the heroes and the villains. The reason I tell the stories in chronological order is I believe it's important to understand the context of the story. Sometimes we look at historical characters with what is called historical bias. We can want someone to be a hero or a villain, and so we leave things out, or perhaps put an emphasis on parts we want people to know about. We can also take things we know today and expect the people of the past to have that same knowledge. When we look at a story from history and talk about all the things that were also happening during that time, suddenly things make more sense. When we look at history with a humble approach, we can see that perhaps, had we been in the shoes of the people living during that time, we would have done some of the same things. Today we're talking about a great man of faith, a hero of the church. He lived for most of the 1800s. As I tell his story, I'm going to mention other things that were happening at the same time. The reason I'm doing this is to help you have a more accurate picture in your mind of what was happening. I also want to send out a huge thank you to people reading and sharing my book. I heard from people all the way out in Western Canada who are sharing my book in their churches. Thank you so much, and that's motivating me to finish the next book. All right, let's get started with today's story. George was born in the Kingdom of Prussia, in an area that is today part of Germany. The year was 1810. George's father worked for the government as a tax collector. George was the second son in the family. Frederick Johann was George's older brother. When George was two years old, William Wilberforce had finally passed the bill that ended the slave trade. Now, slavery was still legal. However, no country that was under the rule of Britain was allowed to traffic slaves. We did three episodes on the life of William Wilberforce, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. Meanwhile, in Prussia, George was just a toddler. George was a terrible child, and I mean terrible. At the age of nine, George discovered where his father kept the money he had collected as a tax collector. He took some of the money and used it to buy himself some treats. This one act gave him a taste of sin, and he loved it. He began to steal money from his father on a regular basis. Soon he moved from buying himself treats to buying alcohol and gambling. By the time George was 14 years old, he was out of control. 
He was out all day and often all night. He partied, gambled, and drank. He became extremely annoyed by his father, who was always trying to talk to him. George was usually too drunk to know what his father was saying. He would brush him off and ignore him. He didn't think his father had anything to say that was worth listening to. One night, George was out the entire night. He came home early in the morning and was surprised to find his father dressed, ready to leave. His father forced him to get dressed and come with him. George was shocked when they arrived at a church. Their family was not a church family. He didn't understand why his father was forcing him to come to church on this particular morning. When he walked into the church, he was shocked to find a coffin and then devastated to see his own mother in the coffin. His mother had been sick and had passed away the night before. He had been so busy partying and drinking, he didn't even know his father had been trying to tell him that his mother was sick. He'd been out drinking and gambling as his mother died. George was heartbroken and vowed he would change. He would use this horrible moment as a turning point. From that point on, he would be a good man. However, while George felt remorse for his sin, there was no turning to God. He would use his own strength to change. And it did not take long for George to sink back into his old lifestyle. He began to steal from other people and not just his father. And he learned how to be a con man. He became good at looking like a rich gentleman. He would visit hotels, run up the bill, and then disappear in the middle of the night without paying the bill. His father remarried and had another son. George didn't care about his family at all. He ignored his new baby brother and stepmother and his father. At the age of 16, one of the hotel owners caught him and had him arrested. He was put into prison and would not be allowed to leave prison until the hotel owner was paid. George sat in that prison for five weeks. During those five weeks, he thought of his mother who had died. He thought about his family. He knew there was no reason for his father to help him. He didn't deserve help. After five weeks, his father came to the prison and paid the fine. He then took George home. Once home, he beat George. He beat him so bad that George thought he might die. While being beaten, all George could think of is that this is what he deserved. Once again, George decided this would be a turning point for him. From this point on, he would be a good man and a good son, someone his father could be proud of. And once again, he tried to do it in his own power. And once again, it didn't work. At the age of 20, his father was so sick of him, he told him that he was useless. The only career that he could possibly have would be to be a preacher. In the area where they lived, the preachers were government employees. They worked one day a week and were free to do whatever they wanted the rest of the week. This was the only job his father thought he would be able to keep, so he sent him to the University of Halle in Germany. It was a seminary. Once in seminary, George found new ways to steal and fraud people. He made friends easily because he had the personality that made people be attracted to him. He always looked like he was having fun. No one knew that inside he hated himself and wanted to find help to change. One of the friends that George met was a young man named Betta. Betta had grown up in a very sheltered Christian home. He was a Christian but was tempted by the lifestyle of George. 
Betta thought that being friends with George might help loosen him up and maybe help Betta have more fun. George put together a trip. He created fake passports and forged letters from parents to get him and his friends all the way to Switzerland. He told everybody the cost of the trip. All his friends sold books and items from their dorms to raise the money. What they didn't know is that George had set up the trip so that he would pay nothing and his cost was divided between the rest of his friends. After a few months of partying with George, Betta felt very convicted. He realized the life of sin was not worth it and he stopped spending time with George and became involved with a prayer meeting. One day, George ran into Betta and asked him where he was going. Betta didn't want to tell him. He didn't want him to make fun of him. But he said, I'm headed to a prayer meeting. George asked, hey, can I come along? Betta refused to let him. He knew George. George would laugh at the people attending. He would make a joke of the whole thing. He would be loud and obnoxious and try to take control of the event. Betta did not want him to come. But George refused to accept a no. He demanded that Betta take him along. At this time, although he was in seminary, George didn't even own a Bible. He had not been to church in years. He lived a sinful life and had no thoughts ever of God's mercy or grace. George entered a simple, small home where a group of believers were sitting in a circle because it was actually against the law for lay people to preach. The man leading the group would actually just read a sermon. George was shocked by what he heard. For the first time, he heard there was a way for him to have his sins forgiven. He had tried to change by his own power. That day at the prayer meeting, George confessed his sins to God. He called out for forgiveness, called out to God and gave his life to him. From that moment on, he would do nothing outside of God's will. His life was no longer his own. His life belonged to God. George never had a drink of alcohol again. He never stole again, and he never gambled again. He began to study because he wanted to know the Bible, not just pass his classes. He began to preach in local churches and was excited to share with others how they could have their lives turned around. This was the same year that in America, the University of Virginia had opened. And it was during this time in 1826 that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died on the same day, just hours apart on July the 4th. Do you love learning about church history and love this podcast? This podcast is being turned into a book series and the first book is now available for sale. You can find the link in the show notes. And now back to our episode. In Germany, George was excited about living for Jesus Christ, but his father was angry. He didn't see the change as a good thing. He thought his son had become a fanatic, that he was taking this preaching thing way too seriously. So he cut him off financially. Suddenly, George was in a situation he had never been in before. He had no money. He would have, in the past, stolen the money or conned people into paying things for him. As a Christian now, he didn't know what to do. So he got down on his knees and prayed. He told God, you are the one in control and I will trust in you. I'm not going to ask for money. I'm going to trust that you will take care of me. He was praying and there was a knock on the door. He went to answer the door and there was a man from the university there. He asked George if by any chance he could speak English fluently. George said yes, he spoke many languages fluently. The professor told him 
We have students from Princeton University in the United States, and they're coming here to go to school, but they need someone to translate for them. They would pay for George to attend classes with them and translate the lectures and their notes. George would not only not have to pay to attend classes, he would be paid to attend the classes and paid extra for translating notes. That exact same day, he was also offered free housing in an orphanage that would give him free housing if he could offer some spiritual guidance to the orphans. This planted a seed in his heart for a ministry God would call him to later in life. George learned that day he would never have to worry. God was going to take care of all his needs. In that same year, 1827, the Hernhut 100-year prayer meeting had come to an end. We talked about that prayer meeting in our episode called The 100-Year Prayer Meeting. To think, that prayer meeting ended with God calling George Mueller into ministry. That's kind of mind-blowing. Three years later, in 1829, George Mueller moved to London to work as a missionary to the Jewish people who were living in London. At the very start of his life in full-time ministry, George was hit with an illness. He became so sick that he had to stop any plans for ministry and was sent to Devon to rest. While there, George met a man named Henry. God used this time of sickness to develop a friendship that would continue through all the years of ministry. Henry and George would become partners in ministry, and this friendship would be the support George needed in hard times. Henry would also face many hard times in his life. Many of his children died at very young ages, including a son that he named George, who died at the age of one. The two men supported each other. After getting better, George returned to London. It was September of 1829. He became sick once again. The mission he was working with would only let him stay inside his home and study. George asked, please let me leave my home and preach, but they would not listen to him. After some time, he realized he would not be able to continue working with this society. So he moved back to Devon, England to work with Henry. The next year, George married a woman named Mary, and the two couples were excited about sharing God's love for others. They moved to the city of Bristol and started leading two churches, and this was the start of the Plymouth Brethren Movement. One of the first things the two men did was to stop charging people to attend a church. During this time, there was something called renting of church pews. Families would pay to rent their pew. The closer to the front, the more expensive the pews were. The church was then divided between the rich and the poor. The farther back you sat, the less money you had. It also meant that people with no money could not attend church at all. We talked about this practice in our episode on the Wesley Brothers. The Wesley Brothers began to hold their church services out in the fields so that poor who could not afford to rent pews could still come to church. They also started to write songs that taught theological truths to help the poor who could not read so they could still learn the doctrines of our faith. And that is why the great hymns from this time period are so rich in theology. George and Henry both ended the practice of renting pews. Now this was controversial. For one thing, people would come to church and find strangers sitting in their pews. Rich people would find themselves having to sit in the back if the front of the church was already full. This was a huge society change in the church, and some people were not ready for that. The second reason this was controversial was it meant the church was going to lose money. Both pastors agreed they would not take a salary from their church. 
they would allow God to put into the hearts of others to donate money to them. They would never ask for money. They would not take money from the church. They would rely only on God. Mary and George had only been married for one month when he declared he was not going to be taking a salary. While we look at George Mueller as a great hero of our faith, let's not forget about Mary Mueller, who had agreed just one month into marriage that her husband would have no income and would rely on only God to take care of them. Are you enjoying this podcast? Do you want to support this podcast? Well, pour yourself a cup of coffee and imagine waking up each morning with a reminder from our church fathers. Check out our Etsy page where you can find mugs with quotes from great men and women of God. You'll find a link in the show notes. And now, back to our episode. A year later, the church had grown and was flourishing. God had taken care of their needs. That year, in 1833, slavery was abolished in all of the British Empire. And a few days later, William Wilberforce died. While William Wilberforce had been welcomed into the presence of God, George Mueller was starting his ministry, and God would have him continue what Wilberforce had started. If you listen to our episodes on William Wilberforce, you'll remember that he had two goals, to end slavery and bring back manners. He wanted to not only end slavery, but he was fighting to end child labor, cruelty to animals, and public executions. God was about to give George Mueller a mission to continue the work that God had started with William Wilberforce. While we continue to learn more about what George was doing during this time, it's important to remember that throughout all the rest of his ministry, he continued to lead his church. In 1834, George Mueller saw the same problem the Wesley brothers had seen, the lack of biblical knowledge. The theological knowledge in the church was a huge problem. While the Wesley brothers had tackled the problem through music, George started the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. This institute helped start Christian schools, train missionaries, start Sunday schools all across England, started adult Sunday schools, and started a printing press. He refused any government money for any of his schools. He would trust God to send him money. He would also never ask for money. Yet God laid on the hearts of people to send him money. He raised what today would have been 113 million pounds. By the end of his life, his institute had given away 285,407 Bibles, 1,429,506 New Testaments, and 244,351 Christian books. But while George was doing so much for Jesus Christ, God was about to show George the calling he had for him that would change the world. Next week, we're going to look at part two of George Mueller and the mission that he's famous for. This week, as we looked at the first half of George Mueller's life, I'm reminded that there is never no hope. God can change anyone if they're willing to repent of their sins and turn their lives over to God. I would also like to remind people that whatever is in your past is forgotten about when God takes control of your life. The Bible says he will wipe away your sins and they will be no more. He'll make you clean as fresh fallen snow. Today, if you are feeling like God could not love you or care about you, remember that nothing you have ever done is a secret to him. He knows all and he loves you. Repent of your sin and turn to God because he alone can change your heart.
Next week, you're going to hear the rest of the story of George Mueller, and you're not going to want to miss that. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen to more podcasts or check out my blog or some of the videos that I have, you can go to lauraleesiemens.com. I'll see you next week.